Live from the city that never sleeps. 17 miles from Madison Square Garden, New York City. It's America at Night with Rich Valdez, America's favorite late night talk program, featuring interesting guests from around the world and calls from across America. And now, here is your host, Rich Valdez. Hi there, good evening, and what's up, America? I am Rich Valdez, your liberty-loving Latino amigo, and our phone number is 833-482-5337. That's 833-4-VALDEZ. That's Valdez with an S, by the way. And our legacy number, you can always call that as well. Now, today is World Radio Day, so I want to salute everybody in radio, not the least of which are right here with me in the uh, D.C. studio. I'm in the New York studio and uh, everybody else that's uh, participating in radio. And just so you know, one of our great affiliates out in Pittsburgh was named the 2023 World Radio Day Recipient of the Year. So congratulations to KDKA out in Pittsburgh. Now, inflation is down maybe a point, uh, but interest rates are up several points. So I don't know if that's not even a wash. We're still behind here. And moving to the political stuff, McCarthy says... The GOP will investigate Biden's documents. They're going to investigate Afghanistan. They're going to investigate Hunter Biden's involvement with all of this. And President Biden's inaction at the border. You also have Biden and Karine Jean-Pierre saying that, you know what? Uh, Well, it was really Karine Jean-Pierre saying that Biden didn't even know that there was going to be an investigation into him. Now listen to this uh, cut number eight. Check this out. When was the president informed about the attorney general's decision to appoint a special counsel? How and by whom? So I, the specifics on that, I can tell. here's what I can tell you. I can tell you that we were not giving a heads up. I was asked that question yesterday. We did not know that, that was, the announcement was going to come yesterday until after it happened. So I can clear the deck there and let you know. Anything else specific to uh, when the president knew or anything that's related to this, I would refer you to the White House Counsel's Office. I know many of you that I'm looking at right now has been in close touch with my colleague there. Uh, and, uh, and so I would uh, continue to refer you to, uh, to my colleague at the White House Counsel's Office. So again, mum is the word, right? She's never got anything to say. It's always zip, nada, zilch. And Karine Jean-Pierre, and I still haven't come up with a funny name for her. If you want to send one to me, at Rich Valdez with an S on social media, I would love that. I'll read those on the air as I check them during the breaks. Uh, A funny name for Karine Jean-Pierre. She's nothing like her predecessor, Jen Circleback Pusaki. And um, Silent P, of course. Jen Circleback Pasaki was a lot more entertaining, a little bit more snappy. But um, Karine Jean-Pierre is a little on the weak side and really just never has uh, anything, not even snappy to say. It's just, I don't know, I don't know, I'll refer you to this. And she answers the wrong question to the, r- the wrong answer for the wrong question. She's, she's just a mess. And I get it. That job is hard enough to begin with. But meanwhile, on Capitol Hill, Kevin McCarthy, Majority Leader, uh, excuse me, uh, Speaker of the House McCarthy, is on the move. He's on the move to do a lot of different things, right? One of the things he said he was going to do is expunge Trump's impeachments. Now, a reporter asked him, let me see here, where are we? McCarthy, this is what the reporter said. I would ask, so there's been some interest among some of the rank-and-file Republicans to possibly introduce a resolution to expunge one of former President Trump's impeachments, or possibly both. 
What do you think of that? Is this something that you would be supportive of? And McCarthy responded this. Listen to this. I'd have to look. When you, when you look at, when you find that the final information that the Russia document was all a lie, when you watch one went through, I'd understand why members would want to bring that forward. Our first priority is get our economy back on track, secure our borders, make our streets safe again, give parents the opportunity to have a say in their kids' education, and actually hold government accountable. But I understand why individuals want to do it, and we'd look at it. So McCarthy is definitely on the move, doing everything that he would that he said he was going to do, and he seems to be doing more. Now, this is not me supporting McCarthy. This is me just pointing out what's going on. And I'm not detracting from McCarthy either. I just I realize if if the, if you don't go against or go for certain things, immediately you get roasted online as a, as a rhino. And I think I'm probably the last person that's a rhino. I'm not a Republican in name only, but I, you know. I'm happy to have that discussion when the time is right, but that's not the discussion. The discussion is McCarthy's doing everything he said he was going to do, and this is exactly what has to happen because we we need to find out what was going on. We have to find out who knew what and when. We have to hold people accountable, even if it's with just hearings that, you know, not sending them to jail, not going here, not going there. But, you know, we need to know the stuff we learned from the Twitter files yesterday about Adam Schiff. What's up with that? Uh, is he the only actor? Were there people acting on his behalf? We need to get to the bottom of all of it. But McCarthy's also got people on the Hill uh, moving not only on impeachment, but he already had a vote or pushed that one vote to roll back spending to defund the 87,000 new IRS agents. We saw that early in the week. He also says that the public should see all of the video footage of January 6th, which shows Capitol Police in some instances walking people inside the Capitol. Listen to this one, cut number 19. 20 of them last Congress called on Speaker Pelosi at the time to release the, the adjacent Capitol Hill security footage of all things that happened on that day. Is that something that you'd be interested in doing? Um, Congressman Gates said that he said that you would be willing to do that. that yeah, I, I think the public should see what has happened on day. I've watched what Nancy Pelosi did, where she politicized it. We're for the first time in the history as a speaker not allowing the minority to appoint to a committee to pick and choose. We watched the politicization of this. I think the American public should actually see all what happened instead of a report that's written for a political basis. And so uh, I think the answer. We're looking through that. I want to be very thoughtful about it. But yes, I'm engaged to do that. So he's looking to pull the um, the veil back on all of the January 6th stuff. I think bravo, outstanding. Hit him on every front, right? Because that's exactly what they did to us. This is... Um, you know, in the Saul Alinsky Rules for Radicals, this is making them live up to their own book of rules. I believe that's rule number four. And uh, we also have um, a- another uh, part of McCarthy's crew here, the chairman of the Judiciary Committee in the House, uh, announcing through a letter that they're looking into what's going on with Attorney General Merrick Garland's um, demand for documents and all of the communications between the Justice Department, the FBI, uh, and the White House about the discovery of these documents, as well as information about Garland's appointment of Robert Hur as special counsel, being that there's a lot of questions around her and how friendly he is uh, with um, the establishment there at the DOJ and uh, his wife's dealings, et cetera, et cetera. So, I mean, lots to discuss there. And 
we also have so much more to discuss on the debt ceiling, right? Because there's a debt ceiling uh, issue that's looming. So, I mean, so much coming out of Washington right now. There's definitely a lot of news, a lot to talk about. And we're going to get to that because there's a lot more to come on Biden's legal trouble. And we're going to discuss most of that and some of that. And um, uh, particularly with... uh, former Attorney General of Virginia and Deputy Secretary of the U.S. Department of Homeland Security, Ken Cuccinelli, and that's coming up straight ahead. So don't go anywhere. Keep it locked right here because we're just getting started. This is America at Night with Rich Valdez. We have received Speaker uh, McCarthy's kind invitation, and the president has accepted it uh, and looks forward to delivering the State of the Union. That's Karine Jean-Pierre saying that uh, Kevin McCarthy, the Speaker of the House, has invited President Biden to the State of the Union. He's accepted. And the question that is uh, on everybody's mind is how is he going to address a joint session of Congress and tell us how well everything is going or how bad everything is going when he himself is being investigated by the Department of Justice? Now, to get to the bottom of that, our guest is a former acting deputy secretary of the Department of Homeland Security. He was also attorney general in Virginia, and he's the senior fellow now at the Center for Renewing America. Ken Cuccinelli, welcome, sir. Good, uh, Good evening to you. Yes, sir. So let us um, dig into that. Um, what are your what's your in, initial, I guess, gut check on on this Biden investigation? How does it unfold from here? What's it look like for the State of the Union? Well, first of all, I mean, you, you mentioned, you know, how does he do this with this investigation coming? Mm-hmm. Let's not kid ourselves. If this were reverse order and Biden's materials were uh, discovered before Trump's, there wouldn't be any investigations. Uh, They would have poo-pooed it and said it's no big deal. Instead, Joe Biden said, who could be this irresponsible? And so now the DOJ is caught and they're stuck. I mean, the only reason DOJ is treating this in any official capacity is because they were stuck by what they'd already done with Trump. So does it affect the State of the Union? It It affects the state of the air of Congress, but not the state of the union itself. Um, You know, the clouds are gathering over Biden over time and with the Republican majority that can actually um, investigate these questions, you can be confident they will in fact be investigated. And uh, none of them, there's no assumption anything he did or didn't do is criminal, but there have been clearly ugly issues that Biden and sometimes the media lied about um, in the run-up to the campaign and since then that are going to now come out. They're going to come to light, and I don't even think it's going to take that long, a few months. And this is, I think, an important point because there's, in my opinion, this is very significant for him because it's going to make it difficult to govern. I think prior to this, he had cover, right? He had cover from the media that was willing to do and say whatever they needed to do and say in order to make it look like things were kind of uh, uh, hunky-dory. But now everybody's saying, well, you know what? If if 
Merrick Garland has to appoint a special counsel, then obviously this is something that's a little more serious. And your point is well taken that they had to to act this way because he'd already been on the record saying this is a big deal. How could you be so reckless? So let's fast forward to the appointment of Robert Hur, the special counsel. Uh, a lot of uh, people questioning um, how reliable, how effective he would be. What's your take? Well, certainly, you know, the notion of um, independence isn't there. Um, I mean, you need to look no farther than Steele dossier participation, and um, uh, and it's the end of the story. Um, this is I, I don't expect. Well, let me put it differently. While it is reasonable to expect the Department of Justice to operate professionally and so forth, no one actually expects the Biden Justice Department to do that anymore. They have com- there's been very few instances where they could have been objective versus political where they actually behaved in an objective manner. And um, so the benefit of that doubt from the American people is long gone. And interestingly, you know, now here it comes and strikes right at the president. And whether one thinks this is a big deal or not, it does strike right at the president in a way they were vigorously going after President Trump. And um, I don't think anybody who knows Hur's background thinks that he is um, going to be anything but a patsy on the Biden front. Right. And it, it seems that way based on just the, the initial look into his background. It seems there's nothing independent about him. And like you said, he's going to be a patsy. So I, I don't think we're going to get much out of that. Do you think much will materialize out of uh, Jim Jordan's request to look at the, the documents, the discovery, and, and questioning why they, they chose her? Um, well, <clears throat> I think you're going to see, again, pretty quickly out of the gate, stonewalling and blocking. And Jim Jordan's request is an example of how that will happen. They'll offer an explanation that is more narrative driven, but I do not think they're going to give him access to documents. I would love to be proved wrong, but that would be very much out of character for a Biden administration that talks a big game about transparency and offers none. Now, what's your your opinion on the fact that there's a garage and the garage is locked and it's, you know, infamously got the Corvette in it, but the, the locked garage, (laughs) (laughs) right? Nor nor the office. Um, Neither of them are like what Trump had going. He did have a skiff at Mar-a-Lago and, and that seems to be the requirement for these documents. So to me, it seems point to Trump for having the, the right facility uh, except for the ones that he had in his private residence and whatnot. But it seems it's it's a real apples and oranges here. It seems Biden's definitely on the deep side of not having any of that in place. Well, that's quite true. And really, one of the questions that has suddenly arisen and is still outstanding is, is this everything? Um, very quickly, well, it wasn't quickly that the the scope of what was in President Trump's possession was known. It's that they were talking back and forth. Um, The fact Mm -hmm. that they executed a subpoena while they were talking cooperatively with his lawyers is extremely unusual for DOJ. And frankly, I was a state attorney general for any prosecutorial authority. Um, Normally, you just go through the lawyers 
and you get the materials. And it was pretty clear that Trump was ready to cooperate. Um, I, uh, I will be curious to see. It'll be one parallel comparison after another here. Mm-hmm. Um, are they going to execute subpoenas on offices that were Joe Biden's? What do you think? Yeah, well, of course not. And, and I think, Ken Cuccinelli, the issue here is uh, they would say, well, the difference is that Trump was refusing to give them back because he was stealing and selling nuclear codes. Meanwhile, Biden was just holding on to these things for six years. But I think I would make the case Biden stole them six years ago and he's been holding him for six years for, for ransom. Right. I, I think it, it's anybody's game to play. And the fact that Trump just left the White House. You know, so if he took some documents with him, whatever and what have you, uh, I think that's a pretty common practice. Biden took these documents and he's clearly outside of whatever window they have. I think the window's five years on under the Presidential Records Act. And he's at the six year mark. So to me, it sounds well, like and he wasn't president and he wasn't president. Right? Uh, unlike so, Trump, he doesn't have a defense to to removing them at all. And he never had the authority to declassify them. Trump had both. Now, would would Biden, from from your understanding, would Biden be able to declassify these things now, like ex post facto, and say, yeah, no, those are all good. Those are fine. Oh, well, he could try to do that. But with crimes, you can't unring a bell. Um, I can steal from you and then think better of it later and bring you your wallet back. That doesn't mean I didn't commit a crime in stealing from you in the first place. Um, You cannot unring the the bell. You can't get yeah, so punched Trump, in the face. <laughs> correct. No, that's right. And in Trump's situation, he could make the argument, and you one can think what they will of it, that um, by implication he declassified anything that he walked out with that should have been in a skiff. Um, and um, it, it it's, you know, that is a plausible argument. And if the other side made it, they'd they'd be – ringing the praises of how brilliant such an argument is. Um, uh, but, but that does not exist for Biden. Vice presidents have none. They have no authority to declassify. They have no protected right to remove documents. Yep. All right, folks, we are on with Ken Cuccinelli, senior fellow at the Center for Renewing America. He was the I always mess up this title here, acting deputy secretary of the Department of Homeland Security during the Trump administration and uh, former state attorney general for the state of Virginia. There is so much more straight ahead. I want to talk about the border a little bit and I want to talk about uh, Renewing America. And you can check them out at AmericaRenewing.com. So don't go anywhere. We are coming right back. I am Rich Valdez. Give us a call if you're interested in joining the conversation. 833, the number 4, Valdez. 833-4-VALDEZ is the phone number. Don't move a muscle. We'll be right back. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford Anything, wherever you listen.
America at Night with Rich Valdez. The border, by many people's account, is not secure by border patrol agents who are there telling the media they just don't believe it is. Do you believe the border is secure? I will tell you something. One of our highest priorities is to ensure that we have a secure border, and that is what we are doing. All right, that's Vice President Kamala Harris. I like to uh, name her, it's a Spanish nickname, Que Mala Eres, Vice President Que Mala Eres, which means how bad she is. And man, is she bad at her job. Our guest is Ken Cuccinelli, Senior Fellow at the Center for Renewing America and uh, former Acting Deputy Secretary of Department of Homeland Security. Ken Cuccinelli, when you were um, at DHS, you, you guys were kicking butt and taking names and doing an amazing job at the border in so many other areas. How does it make you feel to see all that work, you know, fall by the wayside? Yeah, flush down the toilet. Um, it is very unfortunate, and um, and as, as sad as it is, it is for you know border patrol agents and for those of us who worked hard to secure the border. That's kind of personalizing what's a much bigger issue, and that is that this administration has thrown the border open to our uh, state enemies. The Iranians, uh, the Russians mm-hmm. can slip people over that border, and to drug and human trafficking at a at a level and at an ease of accomplishment that has never before been seen. Um, I mean, Joe Biden is the best friend of the Mexican drug cartels they've ever had, and um, you know the vice president doesn't even do a very good job, um, you know, trying to spin it. it nobody buys a, a statement like you just played. Not even Democrats. And by the way, the president has been underwater with Democrat voters in polling since uh, 22 months ago. Yeah. So it's literally true that Democrats don't even buy the kind of statement we just heard there from the vice president. Yeah, it's my belief that the Democrats don't like Kamala Harris. The Democrats don't like Joe Biden. Uh, and it's just my experience in day-to-day life. No matter where I go, I just ask people things, you know, what's going on, this, that, and the other. And people that I know are Democrats, um, they're just embarrassed. <laughs> they're embarrassed that that's their guy and that they voted for him. But the reality is this is a real thing, and it's really not a laughing matter. And it, it, it's sad to see this um, unmitigated, you know, I guess the biggest, most massive um, transfer of, of human smuggling that I've ever seen in my life. And it seems like Joe Biden's at the top of the food chain there. How, how does this occur with, with nobody really hitting the brakes on anything? Well, um, it, it isn't just that they aren't hitting the brakes. I mean, this is a concerted effort with CBP and ICE by the administration to tie their hands. And this is the equivalent of taking over the track and field team and requiring all your players to tie their shoelaces together. How are you going to do? And this is intentional failure. People should understand this. The border situation is often talked about as an unfortunate situation and occurrence. No folks, this is not an accident. What you see on this border is what they intend. It is their policy. This is a successful outcome of their open borders policy. This is what an open border policy looks like in the real world. And we will, as a practical matter, have an extremely difficult time deporting all these people in the next Republican administration. I mean, there's just way too many of them um, without radically changing and eliminating effectively the overabundance of due process 
in deportation proceedings and not waiting for permission from the host countries, literally just bringing them over there and dumping them on them, um, and then coming back to get the next load. There are that many now, and it is it is destroying the morale of the Border Patrol and Customs Border Protection and of ICE agents who are having their hands tied from not being allowed to accomplish their own mission. The right way to do this is to go to Congress and say, you know, we don't we don't want these two agencies actually securing this border. Can you change the mission through legislation? Because that's where this mm-hmm. is all set. They're ignoring the law and, in fact, violating the law. So politically speaking, and I guess um, uh, in terms of policy as well, that's one recommendation that you've made going to Congress and, and changing the, the mission, the scope of, of what they do. Well, now, mind uh, you, I'm not recommending that. I'm saying the proper way to do it if they didn't want to just break the law and undermine the agencies was to go through Congress. But they couldn't get right. the votes for it. They couldn't have even um, kept their usual Democrat unanimity on that subject. Yeah, 100 percent. So what what do you think uh, in terms of policy and politics? What would be the remedy uh, with the the little bit of leverage that Republicans have now with this slight majority? Well, they're going to have to use the budget. Of course, Mitch McConnell made that very hard by delaying uh, for a year until the end of September any power associated with passing a budget where the Republican Congress could use budget riders to force law enforcement at the border and protection of our national security. That was done very intentionally. Uh, People shouldn't kid themselves. There are lots of Republicans, and the more senior they are, the more likely this is to be true, who are perfectly comfortable with illegal immigrants invading our country and denying work and job opportunities to our own poor people, uh, all for the bottom line of companies willing to cheat. And um, while the Democrats are too, uh, it's unfortunate to see when when the Republicans are supposed to be in opposition, and yet they they facilitated it there with that $1.7 trillion dollar budget they passed in December. Massive spending. Yeah, I agree. Um, And before we let you go, Ken Cuccinelli, tell us about your work as a senior fellow at the Center for Renewing America. So the Center for Renewing America is probably the most aggressive uh, think tank uh, advancing conservative ideas, America first concepts. And I'm the senior fellow for Homeland Security and Immigration. Um, Russ Vogt leads the effort. He was the head of the Office of Management and Budget, which is in charge of the entire budget under President Trump. He was extremely effective in that role. Um, As you said at the beginning, AmericaRenewing.com, we can be found. We've got a slew of solutions on the border, including some very aggressive ones, for instance, going after the cartels, um, that Greg Abbott, the governor of Texas, who has already declared an invasion under the Constitution, could actually remove people from who crossed the Texas border back into Mexico without federal permission if he were ever willing to take that step. Thus far, he's been unwilling to do more than declare the invasion. But those kinds of solutions are spelled out in detail at AmericaRenewing.com under the issues that we cover. And we hit the woke policies and their role in education and in the federal government and in the military um, and with very practical solutions. So I'd invite folks to Take a look there. Follow us on Twitter and on Truth Social and so forth. And uh, we'd, we'd love to stay in touch with people so they're well armed with not just information to complain about, but with solutions that are ready to work and come from real experts. 
All right, America, that's uh, Ken Cuccinelli. He was deputy secretary of DHS in the Trump administration. He was the attorney general of Virginia, and he's now senior fellow at the Center for Renewing America. Check him out and all of their uh, policy positions at AmericaRenewing.com. That's AmericaRenewing.com. Ken Cuccinelli, I want to thank you for joining us. I appreciate it, brother. Good to be with you. Have a good night. You too. All right, America, stay tuned. We're going to continue with your calls and more. And uh, lots to discuss. We've got we've got the discussion on what happened. Why did they put the brakes on the stoves? Right, they were going to do a, a a gas stove grab. That was happening. Then it wasn't. Uh, plus, we're going to also have a discussion on the uh, what is this topic? It's escaping me. There's a connection between Ronald Reagan and. Marilyn Monroe. So we're going to get to that a little bit later on tonight as well. Don't go anywhere. Plus, we've got open phones uh, at the top of Hour 3. But we're still going to be taking calls throughout the evening. So give us a call, 833, the number 4, Valdez, 833-4-VALDEZ. Or you can call us at the legacy number. You know the number. So don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. This is America at Night with Rich Valdez. Rich Valdez. All right, America, welcome back. I am Rich Valdez. And again, our number is 833-482-5337, 833-482-5337, which translates to 833-4-VALDEZ, V-A-L-D-E-S. Let's go to Linda in Kalamazoo, Michigan. She's listening on uh, streaming on KDKA in Pittsburgh, and they're the winner of the World Radio Day Award. Linda, welcome. Hi, uh, congratulations on uh, your new show. You're doing a great job. Actually, uh, I'm not streaming. I'm uh, picking up your signal oh, on cool. KDKA, but it is very faint. But uh, it's too bad Ken left us when he did, because I wanted to know uh, if uh, there was any difference between why Biden's homes and so forth were not rated for these classified documents and Trump's was. I think that they should be treated equally the same. Biden has no right to criticize how irresponsible Trump was if he's going to turn right around and do the same thing. I think you're 100% right. And and this is what I was uh, talking about before where we were discussing this and it's it's very very interesting to me. Right. Because, for for example, the, the so many similarities and so many differences and the differences don't help Biden at all. All right. For example, uh, the one you raised, why wasn't the FBI used to raid? Right. Well, apparently the Trump lawyers were in touch and there was a complete inventory. They knew exactly what was in Mar-a-Lago. They knew what was there. And, uh, you know, through the media, they leak one story saying, oh, he wouldn't give us stuff back. But. Through um, reality, we find out that they went, they took a bunch of stuff. And if you'll recall, they took clothing, uh, they took his passports, they took some medical records, which they had to apologize for and return. And after this public apology, after this very public raid, uh, they, um, you know, there's no more talk about nuclear codes. There's no more talk about anything. Yet 
With Biden, it was the White House counsel. And I think the real reason here is there was never a cover-up with Trump because there wasn't much of a crime. They were trying to create a crime out of nothing. And with Biden, they were like, oh, snap. You know, I don't know who or what or how. I'm. This is why my presumption is that someone within the, the White House or someone within Biden's own team, own team is the person that is kind of guiding this. I don't think it's a Republican. Uh, I'm sure that uh, the Republicans are benefiting from this. But I had to be somebody that knew that this stuff was in Biden's garage. You know, who knows? Maybe it's Hunter Biden, right? <laughs> Maybe they said, Hunter Biden, we're going to lock you up. And he said, no, no, no. My dad has a bunch of classified documents in his garage next to his Corvette. Check it out. Trust me. Right. Maybe they said, all right, let's go there and check it out. And oh, lo and behold, there's all this stuff. Uh, because it seems to me Donald Trump isn't going to know what's inside Biden's garage. And Donald Trump's not going to know about this office, the Penn Biden Center. So it, it had to be, in my opinion, somebody that knew this this stuff and said, oh, whatever. And whatever narrative they're giving about they were doing this investigation and they found this. I think it's a it's a. It's a bunch of phony baloney. Uh, I, I truly believe somebody's trying to make room for someone else. And they said, you know what, let's, let's soften the blow here and uh, get rid of this guy. And, and again, I don't think this per se gets rid of him, but it could lead to things that might potentially. And all you have to do is, if you've set a precedent, right? Let's put it this way. If you've set a precedent where you can impeach a president for having a phone call and asking for assurances from another world leader when aid is involved, uh, and, and impeached him for this phone call, then you can certainly impeach Biden for, for all most of the things he's done, right? Ignoring the border, this disastrous withdrawal from Afghanistan, the cost of lives of 13 service members. I mean, if that stuff isn't impeachable, I don't know what is. And, and that's way worse than any phone call Trump ever had. So I think this is um, something that we've got to look at, and I think this just begins to soften the blow. And it's probably part of a lot of political... Um, horse trading with McCarthy saying, look, we'll, we'll get rid of Biden. You know, I think Democrats, they're very good at negotiating and they know, look, we're going to lose, right? We're, it's likely we're going to lose. You guys, we did everything we could to stop you, this, that, and the other thing. And you still squeeze through with a, with a, with a small, slight majority. So if that's the case, then they say, all right, let's mitigate. Let's mitigate our loss and say, uh, We'll, uh, if, you, if you give us this, we'll give you uh, Biden. He's not going to win anyway. We don't want him anyway. So I think that there's a little bit of that going on. But again, that's just me using my experience working in government and my observation of politics over the last close to 20 years and thinking that's probably what's going on. I don't know. Maybe I'm right. Maybe I'm wrong. Uh, but I do thank you, Linda, for listening on uh, KDKA and actually catching a signal in Kalamazoo. I really appreciate it. And for the compliment as well. All righty. Have a good one. You too, Linda. All right. Anyway, we're going to get to the rest of your calls and more straight ahead. Again, the number 833-482-5337. I also have some audio clips I want to play for you. And uh, there's a couple of crazy stories. Plus, I wanted to, I've been throwing around this term skiff, and that is uh, um, a sensitive compartmented information facility. And uh, if you hear me say it, that's what I'm talking about. It's, it's something that they use to make sure you're not getting bugged or spied on to protect the classified info. I uh, just wanted to clarify that because, you know, jargon. Anyway, Rich Valdez, coming right back. This is America at Night with Rich Valdez. This is America at Night 
with Rich Valdez. All right, America, welcome back. We're going to go to Todd in Atlanta, Georgia. Hotlanta, WGKA. Welcome, Todd. You're on with Rich Valdez. Hey, uh, good evening, Rich. Uh, yeah, I was uh, calling about the uh, you know the latest documents they found, and I think that this whole thing is um, all about rounding up uh, evidence. You know, um, they raided uh, Mayor Giuliani because of you know his trip to the Ukraine, what he had on a laptop. They raided Project Veritas to get a Biden connected to Joe Biden. Um, I think they raided Mar-a-Lago because Trump had declassified all the evidence about the corruption of Russiagate and the FISA warrants and the hacking of his office in Trump Tower. And I think that they're um, collecting this evidence because, um, you know, the cat's out of the bag about the, uh, what was going on with the Biden crime family. I mean, there's a, a living witness, Tony Bobolinsky. There's the uh, gentleman at the Mac shop in Delaware. You know, yeah, he's got him on the show coming out. John Paul yeah. Mac Isaacs. Yeah, and I, I think that's and how do they know where to get these papers? How do they know? Well, I where think that's the biggest how question. Do his lawyers know. Right. It's it, to me, it's the biggest question. Again, they have their story that you know is part of this investigation into whatever they came, but and they found it two months ago and covered it up for two months, and now they decided to say something. Now that the Republicans have all the committee chairs and are likely going to go after this, but. I think it. this to me, I've seen stuff like this before. Oftentimes in, in government, um, there's a lot of horse trading going on. It's pseudo blackmail, if you will. You know, and, and they'll come to you and they'll say, hey, listen, President Biden, thank you for your service. We're really thinking you should step aside. You know, or somebody say, look, I don't want to run against you in a primary and I've got this kind of dirt on you. I don't want to do that to you. Why don't you just step aside, leave gracefully, then put me in. And when, when he becomes reticent and says, I'm not doing it. If you, if you think you're running against me, then you ain't black. I, I got hairy legs. You know, and whatever nonsense he starts saying, then they realize, all right, we're going to have to put the screws to you. And then they start doing stuff like that and saying, all right. And then they start leaking to the press and working with the Republicans. And Listen, if I was the Speaker of the House and they came to me and said, listen, we have information that blah, 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 and blah, 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 and blah, 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 and the Corvette. <laughs> <laughs> All right. There's a Corvette involved. Let's do it. You know, so I think there's a lot. And again, Republicans have nothing to do with this. I'm just, you know, painting a picture. But in this situation, I think this is all on the Democrats. It was the White House counsel that uh, conducted the the search of of what was going on in Biden's garage. So, yeah, I, I don't know the answer. I, I wouldn't be surprised if it was Hunter Biden or someone Hunter Biden related trying to save um, their own rear end and try to throw Biden under the bus. But again, how much saving of your rear end can you do, right? If you're Hunter Biden, you get in all sorts of trouble, all sorts on federal offenses. The reality is you really can get a pardon from your dad, the president. It may not have been done in the past, but it doesn't mean it can't be done. So, I mean, that's a, it's an interesting question and it would, you know, ruin Biden's reputation for sure. But I think it would ruin it. I mean, maybe some people would say, ah, you know, I'd do the same thing. Who knows? But I think the bottom line there is, uh, yeah, definitely looks like an inside job to me. And if there's an assist, any Republican would be happy to assist. Todd, thanks for the call. I appreciate it. The music means they're kicking us out. But there is more to come straight ahead. We're going to talk about food prices and uh, the uh, alleged gas stove grabbing that was going on. Don't go anywhere. I'm Rich Valdez. We're coming right back.
from the city that never sleeps. 17 miles from Madison Square Garden, New York City. It's America at Night with Rich Valdez, America's favorite late night talk program, featuring interesting guests from around the world and calls from across America. And now, here is your host, Rich Valdez. Hi there, good evening, and what's up, America? I am Rich Valdez, your liberty-loving Latino amigo. Our telephone number is 833-482-5337, 833-4VALDEZ. That's V-A-L-D-E-S. That's my last name. And we're talking about inflation, uh, specifically on food prices, because there's a piece that I'm looking at here. Where is it? Right here. Listen to this. Egg prices have exploded 60% higher than last year. And other food prices have surged. Now, listen, I know it's not breaking news. It's, even though this story is only, I don't know, 10 or 12 hours old, um, it's not breaking news because everybody knows it. If you were, let's see, uh, scrolling through Instagram like I tend to every now and again, I enjoy Instagram. By the way, if you want to get at me on there, I'm at Rich Valdez with an S on Instagram. And I was scrolling, and one of my friends had sent me a... Uh, uh, a meme and you know one of those funny jokes and it had a picture of like little Ziploc bags that were tied at the top with one two or three eggs inside of them and it said the, the new contraband or something like that that you know the, the new stuff they're selling on the street eggs <laughs> and and I, I understood the the joke and I thought it was very funny because it's true that eggs are expensive actually I've I haven't stopped eating eggs because they're expensive. I've stopped eating eggs because I don't really go to the big supermarket. Because, excuse me, because I like to support my local grocer. And my local grocer is a small um, grocery store. And that's, it's a small supermarket, not a small grocery store. Small supermarket, but it's got a great markup. You know what I mean? So, like, everything in that store is like a dollar or a dollar and a quarter more there than it is if you were to go to, like, a... ShopRite or Walmart or some other big box supermarket. So I typically um, go there for small things and whatever, and I leave. And I had been buying eggs there, and I think I might have shared this uh, on the air. This is one of those stories I'll probably share over and over and over. And I'm buying and buying, and I'm always spending like $40. I'm buying like three things, and I'm like, man, that's really expensive. And one day I looked at the receipt, and I saw that eggs were something like six ninety nine. Now this wasn't last week. This was I don't know maybe twelve weeks ago or ten weeks ago. You know, um, probably yeah, had to be um, like three months ago. So I haven't been buying eggs. Period for like you know the last eight to twelve weeks, and that's why I haven't seen the the, the price on eggs go up even further. But. According to this report here, eggs, milk, butter, flour, uh, all of these things have gone up. Now, they're almost double their rate. Yet, inflation uh, was at 6.5%. I'm thinking, you, me, everybody else, none of us are really paying 6.5% more on eggs, right? I think everybody's paying a lot more. Um, the Bureau of Labor Statistics says we're paying 11.8% more for eggs year over year. But I don't buy it. And, of course, they'll blame everything. The avian flu, they're blaming Russia, they're still blaming COVID. 
Um, you blame I'm pretty sure you blame Trump somewhere in here, but it's still the same thing. So eggs. Now, here's a quote, and this is an interesting one, because uh, now it's fertilizer. And I'm not saying it's not true. I'm just saying these, these are the reasons, right? Uh, here's the quote. It says, even though we're seeing inflationary pressures ease, we still have a war in Ukraine. This is Tom ba- Bailey. He's a senior consumer foods analyst with uh, Rabo Bank. And fertilizer costs have improved, but they still remain very high. Energy costs have improved, but they still remain relatively high. Labor costs still remain a problem. The list goes on. So apparently, because energy costs and labor costs are high, the cost of the egg is high. Now, I I agree with this analogy in so much as as long as everything is high, everything is high, right? As long as inflation is high, as gas prices, I think gas prices have the, the number one effect on things. But listen to this, it gets better. Weather and disease are heavily affecting certain products. Uh, none have been more affected than egg prices. Guess what? Listen to this. Now the latest number. They're up 59.9% year over year. They haven't seen a rate like this since 1973 when um, the cost of bird feed was through the roof. And shortages in price freezes caused certain agricultural products to soar in price. Now, since early last year, there was a deadly avian flu. And I remember that. I think it killed 5 million chickens. Uh, messed up a lot of flocks. So, and turkeys. And they were saying we may not have enough turkeys for Thanksgiving. And uh, obviously, egg-laying hens were affected, et cetera, et cetera. And this was compounded by increasing demand and higher input costs, et cetera, et cetera. Because obviously, everything costs more because... We're in this almost recession because of inflation. Yet everybody wants to throw a little bit of a party because inflation went down uh, a point this month and a point last month. And, and I'm really happy about that. I am. But where's the real net here, right? If we know that they've raised it a point, they raised it half a point, they raised it a point. So I think we're up two and a half points or two and a quarter points on the interest rate while inflation has come down. So we're not even even. Right, we've done more increasing of interest rates than we've done decreasing of inflation. So, in in my world, and again, I understand that there, there's um, there's an interrelation, but they're not directly connected. But until we we are where we were, I don't think we're really going to be in the right place. Those are my thoughts. If you have a different opinion, let me know. Eight three three four eight two five three three seven eight three three four Valdez Valdez with an S. But to me, this is one of those things that uh. I think we need to pay attention to because when you're paying 60% more for eggs, you're you're clearly not going to eat as many eggs. Now, it makes sense to me that I'm not eating as many eggs because it's not that I can't afford them. It's that I'm, not, I'm probably not going to want to buy them when I go there because, you know, I don't know about you, but when things seem to be like, wow, that's the same egg. It's not a bigger egg. It's not a new and improved egg. It's not some sort of a organic egg or whatever. There's nothing different about the egg. It's just more expensive. It's kind of like gas. Gas prices went up. I started driving less. I just didn't want to pay all that money. I have a big SUV. So anyway, those are my thoughts. That's how I beat inflation. I just start to curb everything. And of course, that's why it has such an effect on the economy. Anyway, we're going to continue uh, with our discussion on on inflation. I have a clip of audio I want to play for you when we come back uh, where there's a little discussion on inflation. And uh, we've got a couple more things up our sleeve. So don't go anywhere. Again, our phone number, 833-482-5337, 833-4-VALDEZ. Don't go anywhere. I am Rich Valdez. This is America at Night. This is America at Night with Rich Valdez. 
He's brown, he's bald, and he's breaking it down. It's America at Night with Rich Valdez. All right, America, welcome back. Rich Valdez, 833-4-VALDEZ is the phone number. Let's go to Ethan in Cleveland, Ohio, WNIR. Cleveland. Uh, Ethan, welcome. Hey, You're on with Rich evening. Valdez. Good evening, sir. Good evening. So I wanted to talk more about how percentages impact things. Because when you say percentage, it's an easy thing to type, kind of bring up, and it's an easy point to make, but I don't really think people understand what a percentage is. So when you say percentage, you're talking about different types of equations, uh, for lack of a better term. There's different types of linear equations where you have the straight line, then there's exponentials, and then there's what you see in stocks, which is a type of parabolic curve, I believe, uh, off the top of my head. But what percentages do is they change the impact of that line over multiple different areas. While you may not be, for the percentage of inflation specifically, you may not be paying that specific percent more about things, that specific percent affects multiple things you pay for, therefore increasing the amount you are spending. Does that make sense? Yeah, great point. Thank you, Ethan. I appreciate it. And obviously, yeah, we're all spending all this money. And when you see a percentage of increase on one thing, yes, it's affecting lots of things. Uh, I couldn't go through any more of that math class, but I do get it, and it's a brilliant point. The um, just the fact of thinking of linear equations at eleven nineteen p.m. on a Friday night brought me flashbacks to to my algebra class in the nineteen nineties. And uh, I, I, to get out of that class, I would ask for a bathroom pass and end up at the lunchroom, right in the cafeteria, and go flirt with girls. That was I just I never liked algebra. But anyway, I wanted to uh, continue our conversation on inflation and. Um, uh, I want you to hear this clip from MSNBC where there's a back and forth with Joe and Mika, you know, the morning joke, Joe Scarborough and his wife, Mika Brzezinski. Listen to this. Not that they're doing much about it anyway. Since What's taking power, right? House Republicans haven't focused on inflation at all, choosing instead to vote for defunding the IRS. But really IRS employees based off bogus fears that an army of militarized tax collectors are coming for the middle class. While also voting on anti-abortion bills and approving a weaponization panel to investigate federal law enforcement and national security agencies for daring to investigate conservatives and, of course, Donald Trump. It's what House Democratic leader Hakeem Jeffries has renamed the Select Committee on Insurrection Protection. But we're not hearing so much about inflation these days, are we? Even from the governors, like Ron DeSantis, whose bid for re-election felt more like a presidential campaign, but who now spends most of his time and Floridians' tax dollars battling Mickey Mouse drag shows and shouting about gas stoves. Then we have Glenn Youngkin of Virginia, another governor with a White House glint in his eye, whose state is pushing to deem a fetus a passenger in a car, allowing pregnant drivers to use the carpool lane on highways. It's a thinly veiled attempt by anti-abortion Republicans to further curtail abortion rights by advancing so-called personhood laws. All right. Joey Reid, excuse me. It was not uh, Joe and Mika, forgive me. Although sometimes I think their rhetoric is kind of one and the same. Uh, But she says we're not smart enough to understand the differences. We're not smart enough to understand uh, how things are affecting us. And I have to say I, I disagree 
uh, with, with all of that. Obviously, I disagree. But it, to me, it makes no sense. And I, I feel like if you just listen, that's why I like to use these full-length uh, audio clips that where you let them rant a little bit. And you can really get the context where there is none, right? And you understand that this is really vitriol. And they, they wrap the vitriol in uh, in some sort of messaging that's somehow related. You know, she mentioned gas stoves. She mentioned abortion. She's doing everything she can to just attack everyone that she doesn't agree with. And this is crazy where I come from, right? I think we all would consider this crazy. Now, look, this is... Um, the, the topic of, of gas stoves, she mentioned them. And there's there's a concern about this, right? Now, the government has said, okay, no, no, look, we're not banning gas stoves. But we didn't start the week that, right? We started the week saying, oh, there might be a ban on gas stoves. And that was the federal government. But guess what? New York has taken over, right? New York has taken over and said, no, we, we, um, we may, in fact, uh, ban gas stoves. Uh, Governor Kathy Hochul is considering a proposal that will do exactly that, ban gas stoves. And I think, man, isn't that interesting, right? So I want to give you a little bit of this right here. Let me give you the headline so that uh, nobody is going to misgender me, excuse me, misquote me. All right. Gov Hochul quietly sneaks in proposal to ban sale of gas stoves, fuels outrage across New York. Now, this is how they test things, right? You test things in California. You test things in New York. Governor Kathy Hochul is uh, putting in this proposal to outlaw new gas stoves in the, quote-unquote, New York Housing Compact. She unveiled this uh, during her State of the Speech on Tuesday, urging people to ditch their kitchens, gas grills, and go electric. The ban would affect old-timers and millennials who are obsessed with cast-iron pans. <laughs> That's true. Let's stop right there for a second, just since it's Friday night and I can do that. Have you ever cooked in a cast iron pan? Man, that stuff is good. They weigh a ton and you, you have to use an oven mitt because they get really hot. But boy, they're great to cook in. They are great to cook in. I had I, was, I did not know a lot about cast iron pans, but I have a brother that's a prepper and uh, he, he brings them for his camping and all that. And he started using them at home. And, and I was like, hey, that's a pretty cool pan. And let me tell you, things taste really good in a cast iron pan. And uh, consequently, you can find some that are made in the USA that are just absolutely fantastic. Anyway, um, she's saying that millennials are uh, obsessed with cast iron pans, which are tricky to use on electric stoves. And uh, somebody says, this is plain stupid 70-year-old resident of Seagate, Brooklyn, who gave the name of Victor K., we lost electricity before, during Hurricane Sandy. The only thing we had to heat up our food was gas. What if that happens again? I'm adding the uh, accent for emphasis. Hochul's plan would ban gas stoves, hot water heaters, and oil furnaces in both new home and commercial construction by the end of the decade. If gas stoves get banned, I want a house with a fire pit and a cast iron cauldron, said one Twitter user. So that's Kathy Hochul. But where did this start? It started with the federal government. And we talked about that. I read you an article about that. Uh, I think it was probably last, uh, I don't know, three days ago, four days ago. Anyway, point is, good old AOC, right? Now you guys know, she's one of my favorite foils. Good old AOC, who ran away from me once in 2019 when I tried to invite her on the program because we'd contacted her office a million times. And I saw her at a Puerto Rican parade. We both happened to be marching it. And she skedaddled choom, straight across the street. And I, I did not get a word in edgewise. But good old AOC, 
Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, our least favorite congresswoman from the Bronx and Queens, all out crazy, as I've uh, nicknamed her. Now, all out crazy herself, she was on Instagram, and I didn't see this one while I was scrolling because I don't follow her, but she had some interesting things to say about gas stoves and their effects. Listen to this. I do think it's funny that like absolute utter Republican meltdown where they're like, you can take my gas stove or my cold dead hands or how dare you talk about gas stoves. You have a gas stove. First of all, first of all, I rent, period. Second of all, though, it doesn't even matter because by that logic, these are the same people who would have said we should have never gotten rid of leaded gasoline just because someone may have driven a gasoline car. Science evolves and gives us new knowledge with time. All right, so I'm going to request a couple of ibuprofen. I just got a headache listening to that. I, I don't know what she's saying. I understood the premise. I think she's wrong. First of all, she doesn't understand that conservatives live to make fun of the left. I mean, it's just part of how it works. So when she hears these Charlton Heston references of him saying, you know, from my cold, dead hands. She doesn't get it, that it's funny. It's funny to us because it's meant in jest. And she takes it as, I guess, it's as serious, right? I guess she's taking this at face value. And uh, anyway, it's uh, neither here nor there. But good old AOC uh, thinks that the excuse of saying, listen, I rent. <laughs> so what does that mean? You still have a gas stove, lady. That's the point. Anyway, it's just so hypocritical, and I think it's so funny. And uh, we'll continue to beat up on AOC as we move forward. Uh, I also want to remind you about, let's see, what do we want to remind you about? A podcast. I almost forgot about that. There's a podcast to this program. In addition to my podcast, which hopefully everybody is subscribed to, This Is America with Rich Valdez. New episodes drop on the weekends. Um, The um, show, America at Night, has its own podcast where you can catch a replay. So make sure you check that out. America at Night with Rich Valdez is on Apple and all the podcast platforms. You know, do the little check mark, hit subscribe, follow, whatever it is on your uh, service, but make sure you're subscribed. Anyway, there is more to come straight ahead. We're going to find out what's the connection between Ronald Reagan and Marilyn Monroe. Don't go anywhere. 833-4-VALDEZ. I am Rich Valdez. This is America at Night. America, welcome back. I am Rich Valdez, and uh, I'm enjoying those jazz interludes. I really am enjoying them. They get me in a mood here, so I don't get crazy and uh, start, you know, shouting things. Anyway, no Tourette's this segment. We're going to get into uh, a very interesting discussion on a fantastic book that is out that outlines, amongst other things, a connection between Ronaldus Magnus, President Ronald Reagan, and the blonde bombshell herself, no, not Madonna, Marilyn Monroe. And I think this is such an interesting connection. I didn't even know such a connection existed and how they're intertwined in this book. So I'm curious to find out how 
how uh, the book brings everything together. And I want to welcome the author of the book. He's a biographer and a New York Times bestselling author, uh, Jay Margolis. Jay, welcome, sir. Hey, thank you for having me. My pleasure. So tell us, uh, first of all, what uh, what prompted your uh, interest in writing the the book that you've written, My Merrill, Marilyn Monroe, Ronald Reagan, Hollywood, and Me? I was doing research for my second book, The Murder of Marilyn Monroe, Case Closed, which became a New York Times bestseller. And I started to uh, call people, and I, I rang up Terry Carter, and she told me her story, which I found very fascinating. It's been very little written about in the Marilyn Monroe folklore or just in you know her general um, history altogether. And when uh, Terry was six years old, Marilyn Monroe was her babysitter and was also dating her father, who was 32 and Marilyn was 21. And so for a six-year-old to have Marilyn as her babysitter, of course, this was before Marilyn was famous, but still, she got to know her all the way until she um, passed away at 36. And that was uh, 14 years. Can you imagine that uh, Terry knew Marilyn longer than she knew her three husbands? <laughs> and, wow. and you want to know how Ronald Reagan goes into it? Well, when Terry was 11, her father, Fred Carter, who was a vocal coach at Columbia Pictures, married Jane Wyman, the actress who won an Oscar for Johnny Belinda. And, and she had been recently divorced from Ronald Reagan. So Michael and Maureen Reagan became her stepbrother and stepsister. And, and Michael wrote a foreword for the book. And they still communicate today. They take vacations together with their husbands and wives. And that connection all these years later is still there. All right. So help me understand. You flew through that. Um, I didn't catch any of it. All right. So Michael Reagan wrote the foreword for the book, and he's related to who? How? Um, he's uh, related to Terry Carter, my co-author. Uh, uh, she uh, is um, his stepsister. Got because, uh, you know, Jane Wyman, um, his mother married my co-author's father, Fred Carter. And so Got they became it. stepbrother and stepsister. And how, how or is there a connection between Reagan and Marilyn Monroe? There's a, the connection that's there is, is tenuous. You know, they met each other. They have a couple pictures taken together. Of course, Nancy Reagan was in, in uh, one of those pictures. And that was in 1953. And you could, you know, look that up online. There's a color picture and there's a black and white picture. On, and Marilyn is smiling at Ronald Reagan. He's smiling back. And, uh, you know, he actually, you know, was uh, uh, met her at that at that time. And that was a very interesting connection, maybe a very tenuous connection. But it was a time when they just got to say hi to each other. They were very well aware of each other's fame because they, they both were famous in their own right at that time. Right, yeah, of course, and uh, both very big um, actors and whatnot. Um, okay, fascinating. Tell me a little bit about, you know, you mentioned your first book, and I realize that this is um, kind of a continuation or in addition to that, uh, but tell us the, I guess, the Reader's Digest version uh, of your first book, because I'm really <laughs> curious to know about this Marilyn Monroe murder. Oh, sure, okay. So basically what happened is, you know, I, I picked up a book by George Barris, and, you know, he said, I will always believe Marilyn was murdered. So that got me to start up an investigation. I've always been curious about, you know, celebrity deaths and things that have been unresolved. And Marilyn was put into the uh, camp of three, you know, the suicide, accident, and murder camp. And so I said, well, let's see which one it is. And so George Barris was very, uh, was her last professional photographer, you know, uh, 
he said that Maryland had promised him to fly from New York to California first thing um, on Monday morning. And this was on a Friday. She dies on Saturday. So he's thinking, well, why would she kill herself if she made me promise to be there on you know Monday morning? And so he never believed it. And if you look at the autopsy report, you can pay $120 to check it out. Uh, her stomach was empty. No drugs in her stomach. Not one undissolved capsule in her stomach. There's 20 cc's of a brownish mucoid fluid and no refractile crystals from either the sleeping pill Nebutal or chlorohydrate, which is also a sleeping pill. And But in her toxicology reports, there were enough drugs to kill three people, you know, so that uh, the equivalent of 47 Nebutals in her blood and the equivalent of 17 chlorohydrates in her blood. So you're looking at 64 pills that aren't like uh, proven to have been taken orally, but they mm. show up in her blood is that amount. That's enough to kill almost three people. That's that's murder. Wow. What, what about the possibility of taking them and throwing up? No, there was no indication of vomit. And we know this because uh, Schaefer Ambulance Lieutenant James Hall arrived at the scene. In fact, I know that an ambulance was uh, called that night because I interviewed three ambulance attendants, including Edgardo Villalobos. And he told me that Joe Tarnowski was a dispatcher. I interviewed a former Schaefer vice president, Carl Blonzi, and he said, I remember that Joe Tarnowski was a dispatcher. And I interviewed Joe's wife, Ruth Tarnowski, and she said, my husband was a dispatcher. So we do know that an ambulance was called. In fact, it was called by the housekeeper because uh, Norman Jeffries was Marilyn's handyman and also the son-in-law of the housekeeper. And he said to Donald Wolf that Mrs. Murray, first thing that she did when she found her employer nude, unconscious, face down on the guest cottage bed, whether she called Schaefer Ambulance. And that correlates with the fact that, you know, the attendants I interviewed said that an ambulance was called. And so we, we, we pick up the story with the ambulance attendants who arrived there. So the guard of Villalobos says, well, we got the first call over at Beverly Western, but we couldn't have gotten there if we we're going 100 miles an hour because we we're 15 miles away. So he said that James Hall and Murray Leibowitz got the call because they were right near UCLA. So they responded within two minutes. They got there and they found Maryland's publicist, Pat Newcomb, who's hysterical. And she says, um, she's in there. I think she's dead. I think she's dead. Pointing to the guest cottage bedroom, Marilyn's nude. And um, she's actually, uh, you know, face up on the bed. And so um, James Hall says, whoa, this is Marilyn Monroe. So that he immediately responds and he pulls her off the bed and he remembers he bruised her because he dropped her in her fanny, as he likes to say. And uh, that's what the lower bruise was on the autopsy report, the fresh bruise. It means that dead bodies don't bruise. So she was not dead at that time. He, they put a resuscitator on her. Her color's coming back. And uh, But before he did that, and as we were discussing with the, the vomit, he said there was no indication of vomit. And he also said that there was no odor of hair and no odor of drugs. Now, what that means is that odor repairs a fruity smell from the chlorohydrate, so she would swallow chlorohydrate. There would be evidence of it from a fruity pear smell, and he'd noticed no evidence of that. And the reason that he checked was to the ask Pat Yukon, the publicist, what's wrong with her? And she said, I think she took some pills, so it directed him to go smell her mouth. And so after that, they put a resuscitator on her. Her color is coming back, but then James Hall says that they were interrupted by a guy in a suit and tie who says, I'm her doctor, give her positive pressure. And James Hall says, well, you never argue with a doctor because you could be fired and you lose your job. And so they uh, listen to him, and he takes out a hypodermic syringe with a heart needle already attached to it. He fills it with a brownish fluid, which is not adrenaline, but which you know Hall and Leibowitz had assumed at the time was adrenaline. And he injects it into her heart. And then about a minute later, he pronounces her dead and says, you can leave. Now, when you don't dilute the solution with water first, you kill the patient within a minute. And that's what Hall says happened. 
And so Greenspan, on the pretext that he was trying to save her, he's like, oh, well, it didn't work. But he was really trying to murder her with the injection. Wow. This is a quite a page turner. Okay, folks, we are on with Jay Margolis. He wrote uh, his first book on Marilyn Monroe's murder, and he's got a second book now, My Marilyn, Marilyn Monroe, Ronald Reagan, Hollywood, and Me. We're going to get to that. I just I wanted the, uh, the recap on the first part, and I'm glad I asked. Uh, really, really interesting story so far. Don't go anywhere. We're coming right back. This is America at Night with Rich Valdez. Best head of hair in live late night radio six years in a row. It's Rich Valdez. All right, America, welcome back. Our telephone number is 833, the number 4, Valdez, 833-482-5337. If you want to join our conversation on Marilyn Monroe. And we are on with Jay Margolis, New York Times bestselling author. And the book is My Merrill, Marilyn Monroe, Ronald Reagan, Hollywood, and Me. And we just heard about his first book on the murder of Marilyn Monroe. He picks up with that in this new book. And, uh, Jay, tell us a little bit about the, you know, through the new book. Obviously, you've written one book and you've written another one because there's a market for it. Why are so many people fascinated with Marilyn Monroe? I think they're fascinated because she died at the young age of 36. And it was like she just kind of like time stopped. You know, she was a very famous woman at that time. At that at this time, you have like Instagram. You got, you know, people who have 300 million followers like Kim Kardashian or Selena Gomez or uh, J-Lo, you know, Jennifer Lopez. They got the most followers on Instagram. And so Marilyn was like the number one on Instagram back then, you know, before there was an mm-hmm. Instagram. And she did it without having to have a thing called the Internet. <laughs> And so she was one of the most famous women at the time. And surprisingly, this has not, you know, dissipated until this day. There are young women all over the world that just keep her memory alive. They have, there are like hundreds of Instagrams or thousands dedicated to her. And, or even if you look on Facebook, you'll see thousands of groups on Marilyn Monroe. It's, it's, it's everywhere and it doesn't seem ever to stop. And the reason that she's so you know, sought after is because there's so much mystery behind her life and also behind her death. And so that kind of fuels the fire for more people wanting um, more and more. Fascinating. Fascinating. I love your analogy to Instagram. So uh, your, your take is that Marilyn <laughs> Monroe would, would be the, uh, would be the, the, the Kim Kardashian of Instagram today, if she were still alive. Good, good, uh, good analogy. <laughs> I, I appreciate it. Thank you. Um, so let's uh, let's continue here. So now, um, what's the the um, I guess consensus when you're writing about Marilyn being murdered? I, I don't think that's the official story, right? Uh, do people come at you and say you're making stuff up, or uh, do most people say, "Oh, you're, you're really onto something, Jay"? Well, I've uh, I record all my interviews, and I've uh, interviewed uh, Jane Mansfield's press secretary Raymond Strait. And he said that he knew Thomas Noguchi, and he said Noguchi, who was the guy who did her autopsy, Marilyn's autopsy, so who better to know what really happened to Marilyn than the guy who performed the autopsy? 
So uh, Raymond Strait says Noguchi never believed for a minute that she committed suicide. He wanted to blow the whole thing on Marilyn Monroe, but his superiors weren't having it. And that's what he said. And I have an additional corroboration from uh, George Barris's daughter. Now, George Barris was the last professional photographer. He took Marilyn's last professional picture on July 13th, 1962. Of course, there were pictures taken at the Calneva, but those were by Buddy Greco, and those were not professional. But anyway, the daughter of George Barris, Caroline, um, I, I spoke with her after Mr. Barris died, and I, I was a good friend of Mr. Barris, by the way. And uh, she told me that she got a call from Noguchi, the autopsy surgeon, and he said, I always believed it was murder. I believed it was murder when we got her. And he said there was a big cover-up. They wouldn't allow him to come out with murder. And he said there, was, there were bruises on her face. And he also said that she must have been injected with a needle intravenous injection and he also said that her stomach was empty and what that means is that there has to be undissolved capsules if we're going to believe that this woman actually killed herself by swallowing pills now there are other people that hypothesize that maybe she broke down the pills into a liquid and then she swallowed the liquid and she died but this couldn't have happened because as we mentioned before James Hall said that there was no odor of pear you'd still notice a, a like a peri fruity smell near her mouth so mm. there is no way that the drugs entered through her mouth. And so Noguchi, he always says that he ruled out accidents. You read his book called Coroner to the Stars in 1983. He said that you, you cannot have an accident in Marilyn's case because if you look at her toxicology report, there were too many drugs to take by accident. You know, having enough drugs to kill three people, that's no accident. So he always said that if you had to choose, it would be between a suicide and a murder. And the reason he says that is because every time he gets an autopsy, he always assumes it's murder until proven otherwise. And he said that he was forced to put probable suicide, but he wanted to put homicide. He told this to Caroline Barris, and he also told this to Raymond Strait in private conversations. Two private conversations, I'm sure, amongst many. All right, Jay Margolis, don't go anywhere. I want to get your take on... Uh, I want your speculation on who you think did the murdering. But when we come back, don't go anywhere. We're on with Jay Margolis discussing Marilyn Monroe and his new book, My Merrill, Marilyn Monroe, Ronald Reagan, Hollywood, and me. I am Rich Valdez. We're coming right back. At Night with Rich Valdez. With Rich Valdez. All right, welcome back with limited time in this uh, final segment of this hour with Jay Margolis, New York Times bestselling author of My Merrill, Marilyn Monroe, Ronald Reagan, Hollywood and Me. Jay Margolis, who do you think and why uh, was the killer of Marilyn Monroe? Well, the ambulance attendant, as I mentioned, says this guy says, I'm her doctor. Well, that doctor turned out to be Maryland psychiatrist Ralph Greenson. And what happened was, according to Peter Lawford in his last interview, he said he said the following. He said that, that what happened was that Bobby Kennedy called up Dr. Greenson and said, hey, look, Greenson, I know you're having an affair with Marilyn, and, she, and she's, we're also having an affair with her, too, you know, me and Jack. And on first thing Monday morning, she's going to expose both of us and you, too. And so the thing is that Greenson really was having an affair with Marilyn, but Bobby lied and, and said that it was going to be exposed along with him and Jack. 
but Marilyn only wanted to reveal Bobby and Jack, not Greenson. So Bobby used Greenson's affair against him to get rid of Marilyn. And he lied in that respect to scare the doctor. His whole psychoanalytic career is on the line. It's burgeoning. And he just it would go up in smoke if he thought that, you know, it was going to go away somehow. So he got scared into doing it. And there's actually five eyewitnesses that saw him do it. Peter Lawford was a witness, according to the ambulance attendant. He said that as Greenson injected into the heart, injected Marilyn into the heart, that Peter Lawford and Sergeant Marvin Ionone entered. He's another eyewitness. He was a security detail for the Kennedys. Pat Newcomb, as I mentioned before, was a publicist. She's an eyewitness, according to Hall. And the two attendants themselves, Murray Leibowitz and James Hall, are witnesses to the needle going into the heart. In fact, uh, Peter Lawford said the following. He said, Marilyn has got to be silenced, Bobby told Greenson, or words to that effect. Greenson had thus been set up by Bobby to take care of Marilyn. Now, what my book does that others don't is to put together Peter Lawford's testimony next to the ambulance attendants, because the ambulance attendants are explaining how, you know, Greenson took care of Marilyn by the undiluted pentobarbital injection to the heart. In fact, there's a CIA document that was uh, dated August 3rd, 1962, in which Marilyn was going to hold a press conference first thing Monday morning. They kill her on Saturday. And she was going to uh, mention what she calls her diary of secrets and also what the newspapers would do with such disclosures. She was going to mention the bases in Cuba and the secret plot to kill Castro by President Kennedy. And they couldn't have her running around giving national security secrets. I mean, imagine if that was happening today. It would be a big scandal. A lot of people would go to jail. So they took care of her. And that was how that, that happened. And it couldn't have been the mafia because Greenson did it. It's a direct Kennedy connection. No mafia involved. Now, why was the, and again, we only have a minute here, but why was the bodyguard of the Kennedys present as an eyewitness? He was uh, uh, not a bodyguard, but he was like a security detail. Whenever there was a function, he showed up. He was about 29 years old, started Marvin Ionone uh, during the time that this happened. And he was also assigned to the case himself. In fact, there were witnesses that placed him there. Fred Otash, who bugged Marilyn's house, said that he saw Ionone and Peter Lawford together. James Hall, who was the ambulance attendant I mentioned, he said that as Greenson injected in the heart, Ionone entered the guest cottage because he was wearing a blue unif- uh, his blue uniform with the little name tag on top. It says Ionone. And so he knew that was him. And he later became police chief of Beverly Hills, a very fast promotion for somebody like that. And, wow. and it was interesting because uh, Peter Lawford knew that Greenson had been set up by Bobby because James Hall said that Peter saw the needle go in. In fact, James Hall challenges the publicist, Pat Newcomb, and says she saw that injection to the heart, too. Well, she comes wow. forward, he says. Fascinating. Jay Margolis, New York Times bestselling author. The book is My Merrill, Marilyn Monroe, Ronald Reagan, Hollywood, and me. Jay, thank you, sir. Thank you. You bet. All right, folks, Open Phone America is straight ahead. Don't miss it. America at Night, Rich Valdez. Live from the city that never sleeps. 17 miles from Madison Square Garden, New York City. It's America at Night. With Rich Valdez, America's favorite late-night talk program, featuring interesting guests from around the world and calls from across America. And now, here is your host, Rich Valdez. Hi there, good evening, and what's up, America? I am Rich Valdez, your liberty-loving Latino amigo. 
And our telephone number is 833-482-5337, 833-482-5337, which spells out 8334-VALDEZ, and that's Valdez with an S. You could also get me at Rich Valdez with an S on all of the social media. And I look forward to uh, chatting with you there and uh, getting your feedback. Uh, by the way, it's World Radio Day. I mentioned that a little while ago, and I salute everybody in radio. Uh, I love the radio. I don't know about you. I do love radio. Uh, it's Yeah, everybody um, in radio always talks about the old saying where people say they've been saying radio is dying since the invention of the television. And that's true. But radio hasn't died. It's not going anywhere. It changes, uh, but it hasn't gone anywhere. And I love this forum, this format. And I love you guys, the listeners, and uh, those of you that call in. I love you as well because it's uh, great. Even if I rush you off the phone and uh, you know, I say something that's a little bit snide, doesn't mean I don't love you. just means, you know, I didn't think it added value to the program at that moment. But I love you nonetheless. And our telephone number I gave you. So we're going to get to you guys. It is Open Phone America, Open Phones Across America, uh, Larry King tradition, carried on by the late, great Jim Bohannon. And here I am having the opportunity to speak with all of you as well. So we're going to get to your calls and more. Um, we might do some audio here, um, switching things up a little bit. But there's a few articles I want to discuss with you because um, just a lot of stuff out there. Right, right now... Um, there's a, uh, let me see, where did this go? Where did this go? Well, the first thing I want to talk about, it's not even an article. I just learned recently, I'm going to teach you something that uh, I'm pretty sure some of you know this, probably the majority, and there's a minority that don't know it. But I did not know what the term Rickrolled means. Now, if you've ever been Rickrolled, then you know. I, it's never happened to me. I didn't even know it was a thing. But apparently, this is like a sort of prank that people do, whether it's uh, creating a hyperlink that you click on and it takes you to some uh, online video of Rick Astley singing. What's the name of the song? I'm Never Gonna Give You Up by Rick Astley. And uh, maybe you could play that gently in the background at some point. And, uh, or people do like prank calls. And what's fascinating here is that our call screener, Tom, also known as Count Delacula. Count Delacula just got Rickrolled on the phone. This is true. Now, uh, I did not know what it was, and this was all explained to me momentarily, uh, a few moments ago. And uh, I just uh, I just wanted to announce this breaking news because I didn't know it was such a thing. But when he got to the call and said, you know, Rich Valdez Show, what do you want to say? They said whatever Rick Astley says. And I guess we don't have that audio, so you won't get to hear it. A story here it is. Evil Knievel's son, Robbie Knievel, has died at 60 years old. And uh, my condolences to them. Growing up, I loved Evil Knievel. This guy was was the man. I thought he was the coolest guy. You know, I was like six years old, maybe five. I was like, man, I want to have like a tight leather outfit with the American flag on it. Turns out it was more like a Confederate flag. <laughs> and I didn't realize that. Uh, but he... Um, he was really cool, and uh, Robbie Knievel did pass away. Let's see here. His brother, Kelly Knievel, told CBS News on Friday that he died of pancreatic cancer after being in hospice for three days. So they did expect it, and um, that's a shame. But he uh, was a daredevil, and he had 350 jumps and 20 world records, according to his biography. So um, R.I.P. Robbie Knievel, son of Evil Knievel. Now, we are going to get to your calls. I'm sorry if I bored you with my stories, but uh, I think that, and, and my song, excuse me, because I, I was just so taken aback when I did not know what this meant. So if you do know what it means, let me know. And we are going to go to your calls. Let us, um, let us begin with Gil in Manila, Philippines. He's got a quick comment on 
how you can save some money on eggs. And as I mentioned earlier, there is a article that I read earlier that there's a 60% increase on eggs from last year to this year. Gil, welcome, sir. Hello. Um, One of the many things I did in my eclectic career is I owned a restaurant. I wasn't the cook, but I did all I could to learn. And um, a good way to save on eggs is use jumbo eggs. A jumbo egg is the equivalent of two extra large. But it doesn't cost twice as much when you do the math. If you use uh, jumbo eggs instead of large or extra large, you save 30%. So Fascinating. I never thought of it. I think I typically buy a jumbo large, or is jumbo bigger than extra large? Yes, they're, they're uh, medium large, extra large, and jumbo. Ah, when I was a okay. very, very young young man at 14, my first paid job was working on an egg farm, uh, picking and sorting eggs. So I still remember that. Gil, and, um, you are so cool. You have such such a, an eclectic background. We were poor, and I had to work as a kid. <laughs> I had all the jobs I could take. But uh, my father uh, lost his health, uh, had a uh, had a severe heart attack. He couldn't work, so you know, we all had a chipping. But yeah, let me ask you, know, you a question, speaking of being poor, right? I mentioned earlier inflation is down by a percent this month uh, from last month, more or less, and interest is up by about 2%. And... Now the Secretary of the Navy is weighing whether we will fund our own military or fund Ukraine within the next six months. What what do you think about that? Well, I think we should give the Ukrainians all the help that they'll take. Because just because Vladimir Putin doesn't have a funny mustache like the gentleman did 80 years ago, uh, doesn't mean he's not of the same mentality. And it sure, oh, yeah. Sure I understand that. But what Carlos del Toro is saying is that in the next six months, the U.S. Navy may need to choose between arming itself or arming Ukraine because weapons producers aren't making weapons quick enough. And this is his response to somebody saying the Navy might get to the point where they have to make a decision whether they arm themselves or arm the Ukraine. And um, not the Ukraine, just Ukraine. And... Uh, I just I think that's interesting because I think at some point you have to say, and I'm not an anti-Ukraine guy, but I I think it's pretty, pretty um, like the sake of self uh, self preservation, right? If how could we go without funding our own naval needs if we're funding someone else? Yeah. Okay. Uh, I'm a former um, history major, and yes. in uh, 19. Uh, 40s, early 1940s, before Pearl Harbor, uh, we uh, had to make that same choice, and we gave many of the weapons we had built for our own use to the, uh, the British. We, we called ourselves the arsenal of democracy, and maybe we ought to have that same mentality now. But- All right, fair point. I appreciate it. Thank you, Gil. Uh, we will continue with your calls and more straight ahead. I want to uh, continue to get your opinions on the stuff we're talking about. I also want to uh, 
share a couple of clips of audio that I have with you. So don't go anywhere. Uh, I was a little distracted reading this article and uh, on the Navy because I think that's pretty interesting, and I don't know where I would come in, but I'm pretty sure I would probably err on the side of the U.S. Navy and say, sorry, guys, you're on your own. Find some new international partners. Uh, but um, willing to have that discussion, and I appreciate Gil's feedback. More in a moment. This is America at Night with Rich Valdez. That's 833-4-VALDEZ. That's 833-482-5337. 833 valdez That's Valdez with an S. All right, America, welcome back. We've got calls from North Carolina, Nevada, Washington State, all across the Fruited Plain, and we're going to get to that in a moment. I just want to share this with you because if I don't share them now, I'll forget. And uh, this is really interesting stuff. So apparently there are digital license plates in California. And yes, just as you'd imagine, these digital license plates have gotten hacked. Last year, California became the only uh, the third state in the U.S. to allow digital license plates. Now these fancy customizable plates are only available from a company called Reviver, which charges users from 20 to $25 a month in order to have. Now, this thing looks like a digital watch like you had in like second grade, but as a license plate. I don't understand why they'd have this little iPad-looking thing as a license plate. Why would I need to, what is it, it's to light it up? I have a light on my license plate. It works just fine, and it's reflective. Anyway, at the time, Reviver swore that the DMV-certified cloud service backing the plates was entirely secure, but now we know differently. A team of security researchers hacking around in the automotive industry was able to easily gain access to Reviver's system, revealing that the real-time GPS, uh, revealing the real-time GPS location of all vehicles. So there you go. You get this um, cool little iPad-looking thing. That's your new license plate, digital license plate. And on top of that, they know exactly where you are. I mean, it's bad enough we have an Easy Pass transponder that can help us with that. Those little tags, I'm not thrilled. I have one, and I don't like it. I wish I didn't have to uh, have it. I, you know, it's just, where do I hide it, you know? I just don't want people knowing where I am all the time. Anyway, uh, according to um, Sam Curry, he's a, in this article, he's referred to as a security buff. He became interested in Reviver because the nature of the product meant that all the location data was available on all subscribers. These digital license plates come in wired and wireless versions, both of which have low-power LTE uh, radio to remain connected to the company's servers. That's how users can change their plate's custom text or mark the vehicle as stolen. Anyway, I think this is stupid. I think we should keep license plates exactly how they are. Uh, to me, this sounds like if they didn't get hacked to, to lose their, um, their privacy and for people to know exactly where they are, you could hack it yourself and change it so that, you know, it's like I just robbed the bank, change the license plate, you know. It, it's easy to change. It's easier than putting a fake plate on the car. So I don't know. I don't, I don't think this is a good idea. But if you have an opinion on that, I'll take it. Anyway, uh, let us uh, continue with our calls here. We have uh, John in Reno, Nevada. John, welcome. You're on with Rich Valdez. Good evening, Rich. Hola, senor. I tell you. When they first came out with the Trump documents uh, fiasco, 
I thought it was kind of silly because it's impossible for a president to leave office without some documents being misplaced. Um, there's so many top secret and classified documents that it's impossible for some of them not to get lost. To think of it as a perfect system where none of them ever get lost is foolish. Well, I don't know if they're uh, lost. Uh, just, just to clarify, I don't think any of the, these documents are lost, and I don't think George W. Bush lost any documents, and I don't think Jimmy Carter's lost any documents. Uh, who else? Bill Clinton. Um, I don't think they're saying he's lost. So, I mean, it's kind of isolated to to, to these two guys, but um, I, I don't think it's lost. I think it's they're, they're improperly storing classified data, and Trump properly stored it, but they decided to raid him anyway. Yeah, well, when I say lost, I mean that they don't know where they are at a given point. I see. Yes. Understood. Well, at least that's what Biden's saying. It's like, oh, yeah, they're in my garage, and they're here, and they're there. But, yeah, I, I get what you're saying. I, and the main point for me is that they're leaving office and they're taking documents with them, which I think is uh, – th- that, I would say, is probably a very popular occurrence. I can't imagine me being president – and doing really cool things and, and not taking several mementos with me, I would, you know, I'd fill up a room and be like, yeah, this is when I was over here. This is when we signed, you know, let's say for Trump, when we signed the Abraham Accords, when we did this, when we did that. And I, I would definitely bring up a, a bunch of things with me. Uh, so, yeah, I think you bring up a good point, John. Yeah, as you say, uh, Biden's document situation is a little bit worse because he was vice president. And because of where they were actually kept in a completely unsecure location. Uh, but I wish we would move on from this and get on to the Biden in the Hunter investigations. Well, you know, uh, I, I, I think there. they're interrelated, no? I mean, I think we're going to find that, that Hunt, at least as of yesterday, I think there was certain things saying that Hunter Biden frequented this Penn Biden office. So if now there's a connection where he was doing his work where he was, you know, saying, oh, you got to give 10 percent for the big guy or whatever it is, kicking back some money or using the influence of the office. I think he might get in some trouble. I hope it is interrelated, as you say. Yeah, well, we'll soon see. I mean, sometimes the smoking gun is enough uh, when it's politics. To me, this I was saying earlier, I don't think that this is uh, part of the vast right wing conspiracy. Right. I think these are Democrats that are saying we've had enough. And uh, we know where the bodies are buried and we're telling the press and we're telling Garland and we're telling everybody we can where these bodies are buried because we want to get rid of you. At least that's my take. Yep. All right, John. Well, thank you, sir. Have an excellent weekend. I enjoyed the conversation with you. And let us see here. Where are we going? Ed. Ed in Washington State. Ed, how are you listening to the show? Uh, KBSN. All right, big shout-out to KBSN 1470. Ed, quickly, in the uh, minute we have left, what's on your mind? Wow, you only got to... Okay, first things first, the classifications, there are several classifications from from really minimal, and they can all call all of them classified. So it, it really, to a certain point, it doesn't make any difference about the classification because uh, there's variable ones. But what right. I want to talk about, the reporting of inflation is woefully inadequate and you, you go on to their website, and they say that they base it all on the, starting with the most basics. But when you're paying, uh, uh, when, the, when the manufacturer decreases the amount that you're getting, that causes inflation. But sure. then when they, when they add another 10% of increase in price minimum, that is inflation. 
and we're talking about paying 200% for gas. We're talking about minimum of 10 to 20% increase now that you're paying for than what it was two and a half years ago. And we'll never achieve that majority of the products. We will never achieve that making up of the inflation because the market just doesn't work out. Once it gets to a certain point, it pretty well retains that. So that's all I had to say. Well, well, well put, Ed. I appreciate it. And uh, the only thing I would add uh, is that w- when we look at the the um, CPI numbers, they're adjusted to exclude the cost of energy and uh, a couple other things. I think it's the cost of energy and if I'm not mistaken, I think they, they take food out of that equation as well. Uh, so if or housing costs, excuse me. So if you're not talking about what you're spending on energy or housing costs and you're still saying you're at six and a half percent, man, we've got a problem here, right? Houston, we've got a problem. Anyway, Ed in Washington State, thank you so much for the call. I appreciate it. We are halfway through, but we've got halfway left. Don't go anywhere. It's Open Phones America with me, Rich Valdez. Don't go anywhere. That's me, folks. Give us a call, 833-4-VALDEZ, 833-4-VALDEZ with an S. And there is a, an update on a story that we did a while ago that I'm going to get to in a moment. It was about that little six-year-old kid that shot somebody. But there's other stories here I want to share with you. Crazy stuff. I wish I had a couple of hours to do this. I know somebody out there saying, dude, you have three hours. You're, you're right. I do. <laughs> and uh, maybe I'll get to some of these crazy stories earlier. Uh, but interesting story came out today. Black professor called anti-black after classroom ban on hoodies, booty shorts, and do-rags. So there's a professor, let's see, right here. He's facing accusations of anti-blackness because he told his students that they could not show up to class wearing certain articles of clothing, including hoodies, do-rags, and what are in uh, quotes here as twerk shorts. Uh, A student of a North Carolina agricultural and technical state university excuse me, excuse me, North Carolina Agricultural NCAT, a historically black university complained of the dress code of computer science professor Derek LaFleur, and he complained on Twitter, and he got a massive response. This is good. The professor's syllabus banned several types of clothing from his classroom, and uh, he says that there's a meaningful... It's unclear if there's a meaningful difference between the types of shorts that are prohibited, but the names refer to a style of shorts that are extremely short and tight, is is what the syllabus said. Good for him, saying that these items are not appropriate to wear to class. If you wear it to bed or to the club, don't wear it to class. (laughs) The comments are now in a viral post that were peppered with accusations of LaFleur being anti-black. Now, again, if I were black... um, I would say that's messed up that I have to be defined by short shorts. Uh, this to me is just, uh, it's crazy. Um, but this is the uh, the response. Everybody's very upset saying this is giving anti-black. Imagine, oh my gosh, I can't even read that on the radio. All right, anyway, that's that story. If you want to react to that, I'd love to hear your thoughts. Uh, I'm 
personally, I'm I'm in favor of having uh, dress codes. I think we have them everywhere else. Why not have them in a college classroom? Anyway, we, we continue. Uh, let us go to hmm. Let's see. Let's see. We got Charleston, South Carolina, North Carolina, and Wilmington, Delaware. All right. We'll go. To, first, we'll go to North Carolina. Uh, 107.1. Dave, welcome. You're on with Rich Valdez. Hi. Thanks for taking my call, Rich. First of all, I want to tie a couple things together. The world is not what it was in the late 30s and early 40s. The the feelings of the population are not. The similarities are that we Putin is every bit of threat that Hitler was. We mm-hmm. have been closer recently and are today closer to nuclear war than we've been since the early 60s. The threat is there, but most people, you know, if it's not on Facebook, they don't care. So yeah. tie that with the fact that you've got a chief of naval operations saying we may not be able to fund our Navy and Ukraine. That's a red flag. That's somebody in the current administration saying, we're Help. not because we're spending money on wokeness training in the Navy. We're going to fall short. So we're going to fall shorter so that we can spend money in Ukraine. Now, with that being said, hmm. I just heard earlier that the new Republican Congress, they need to all be dragged out of there. Every Everybody in Congress is supposed to be a representative, and most of them don't represent their constituency. They ought to all be fired. And but, you know, we voted these guys in and I just heard that in opposition to the debt ceiling, they said that they're going to hold the lever on spending. The first thing that they want to cut is Social Security, Medicare and veterans benefits. The reason what's funny about that is those are three things that have all had allocations in the past, but we can't pass a budget. Congress doesn't do their job. So yeah. there is no budget. So, so they use that as an excuse to say, well, nothing's truly allocated. We're going to cut Medicare for the older people. We're going to cut Social Security for the older people, both of which are being paid out to illegals. Social Security disability, there's hundreds of millions of dollars in false claims that go out all the time. They've talked for years about cleaning that up and never have. It's always talk, talk, talk and no action. The other thing is, at any time, all volunteer force now has been since the 70s, there is no draft. Only 1% or less of the entire population volunteers to serve. And so now they're going to take, they're going to cut into the veteran services. And they've already done that for the illegals at the border. I don't hear him saying anything about we're going to defund the, the border operations. So that we got to tell people, you can't come in today. We can't afford you. I mean, they could truly say that if they took funding away from those operations. Paul yeah, Ryan. Dave, you know, th- that's something we discussed earlier with Ken Cuccinelli. He was on in the first hour of the program. And uh, I, my question to him was, what approach, you know, do you think this Republican majority is going to take? And and his recommend well, he said not a recommendation, but he said the the plan of attack would be to use the power of the purse and to also use their legislative ability to change the scope or focus the mission of the organization to give them more teeth uh, because clearly they're not living up to their mission. And I agree that's that's action they have to take. Um, I started the show talking about all of the things that they're doing. 
I don't believe that we'll get to a point where we're, I mean, I, I it's never happened in my lifetime where we've, we've, um, we've stolen, borrowed and moved money around for social security, but everybody that's due a check is always getting one. And eventually we're going to get to a place where maybe I won't get a social security check, but everybody that's due one in the current day is going to get one. Right. So I think it's just the future that might be, um, slim or bleak for, for some of us. Uh, but I, I agree with your point. I, I think uh, um, most of it, it with respect to saying we can't afford to do a lot of these things anymore. And I think you're right. We can't afford to have an open border. We can't afford uh, for the military to be uh, defunded or to be weakened by by just about anything. We have to make sure we strengthen the military. And I think we'll get to that place. I mean, right now we have a this small majority in the House. Hopefully we can grow that in 2024 into something else. Uh, it's going to take a little while to get there. But the need doesn't change. And, and I, it's, it's a very important point that you brought up, and I appreciate the call. Uh, more on your calls straight ahead. I am Rich Valdez, 833-4-VALDEZ, 833-4-VALDEZ. We'll be right back. This is America at Night with Rich Valdez. is night. This is Rich Valdez. All right, America, welcome back. So this uh, article I'm looking at here, PJ Media, listen to this. There's a trendy aesthetic mutilation trend called limb lengthening surgery. You may have heard of it. And um, the medical industry is, is mutilating people in the name of cosmetic stature lengthening, according to the piece here, uh, they do, uh, basically they make your legs longer so you can be taller. And uh, I think this is risky, right? It's very risky because, you know, A, you could look weird, and B, I saw a video on YouTube of a guy that did it, and he was like, oh, I've always wanted to be tall, and not, I think he grew six inches. Here's the problem. The guy's six inches taller. They, I think they added three inches to the uh, lower bone, like the bone below the knee. I forget what it's called. Is that the tibia? And then, uh, and then the femur, right? And, and uh, those two, um, three and three. So six inches taller. Problem is the guy walks like he's walking on stilts, and he's like two years post-op. But he's like, oh, I don't care. I have a slight limp or whatever. It's more like a waddle. And and he's taller, and he's like, this is everything I always hoped for. <laughs> I just thought, man, you know, I'm not the tallest guy, but I don't know that I'm going to get surgery to uh, make my limbs longer. But I don't know. You let me know if you would get limb-lengthening surgery. And uh, uh, let's go to our calls. Let's go to Wilson Creek, Washington, KBSN. Uh, Rick, welcome, sir. I can't even believe I'm crazy. You are on the radio, sir. And uh, can you hear me? Yeah, you're in Washington State. We hear you loud and clear. KBSN, fourteen seventy AM. As long as you hear me. Yes, I didn't know if you could hear me. I just want that ACOL, and uh, you know everyone's doing the wrong thing with the gas and this and that. But I'm renting, like she's exempt because she's renting. And um, anyway, I told your screener. I just wanted to talk to you. I was telling you, telling him how I just love you. You're so cool. 
Thank I, you, brother. I listen to you every night, and um, I don't. Ha- I'm remodeling a house, and I'm living in a motorhome, so I don't have a TV, and I'm listening to the radio every night of my life. And you are, man, you're amazing. And I'm oh, scared gosh. to death that I'm on the radio. So anyway, but, uh, <laughs> well, uh, you're making me blush, and I'm brown. <laughs> <laughs> Rick, tell I'm me just, about this house you're rehabbing. What kind of house is it? Is it a house for you or something you're flipping? Are you part of the crew that's working on it? What's going on? I'm not gonna fl- I was going to flip it, but it turned into a disaster, and I'm going to end up living in it. And it's it's a shack, and I paid very little for it. It'll be paid for within by ne- this time next year. It's paid for, but I'm living oh. in my motorhome. I'm backed up to it. I'm, I've got the power and everything hooked up to it, but I keep, it's not livable. So I sit in here every night, and I listen to the radio, and I have a drink, and... And um, I just well, like salute. the hell out of you. I just want to let you know these. You, you're really, you keep people you. awake and alive and and current. And I'm nervous that, as I, hell. So. It means more to me than you think, and not because I need more of an ego than I have. Actually, uh, these things actually humble me because I appreciate that I'm actually reaching people and making a difference. But I think it's um, it's interesting that you called uh, because I get to you know points of personal privilege. I've always wanted a motorhome. So what's it like? What are you, what are you pushing there? What do you got? One of those 14 footers or like a 26 footer? What, what are you in? No, mine's a 33 footer. It's a 93 Ooh. and it used to be nice until I started living in it. And now it looks like crap. <laughs> well, 33 foot, that's big. You probably have like a queen size bed in there and a couple of twins. You know, you could fit a few people in there. I got a big uh, double bed in the back. You know, this thing used to be immaculate. And now that I actually live in it, it's just going downhill fast because I used to rarely use it. But yeah. anyway, I can't tell if I'm talking over you, and that really, I hope I'm not. No, no, you're fine. But, you're fine. Trust me, you'd know. I, I don't allow it. Anyway, <laughs> I, I have to be able to hear you. Uh, Rick, I appreciate it, brother. I've always actually wanted a uh, a motorhome, and I always wanted, when my kids were small, I wanted to do like a vacation where I drove across the country. Um, they're a little bit bigger now, so I'm going to have to wait till they're like, whatever. Whenever that time comes where I can afford one of those and... Uh, and do that trip. But I, I think it's, uh, it's cool. I think it's a cool thing. I want to go to Mount Rushmore and I just want there's a few things I want to do. So you've, you've sort of inspired me to do that again, Rick. Thank you, sir. Hey, okay. Hey, thanks for letting me call in brother. You got it, man. Hope to hear from you again soon. Have a great weekend. All right. Let's see where we go from here. Washington state. That was great. Let's go to Charleston, South Carolina, WTMA. Robert, welcome. You're on with Rich Valdez. Hi, hi. Hi, Rich Valdez. It's a pleasure to speak with you again. Likewise, I just wanted sir. to let you know that the, that the Ukraine. Okay, thank you. That, that, that the Ukrainians are in a desperate struggle. They're dying by the tens of thousands for nothing. You, Vladimir Putin could have easily spoken with us in Germany when he was there, and he, uh, he always stops in very religiously and and stays at our, at our best hotel. And he always talks to everybody and has a great time. And he could have talked to us. He didn't have to kill ten thousand, tens of thousands. What would of talking do if his goal is to take people's land? You know something? I don't even know what he's trying to accomplish. I I, I, called I do. He wrote it down. He wrote a, like a thousand-page thing two summers ago, and he basically said that the Russian Federation has betrayed, I believe what it's called, uh, I forget what they call it. Oh, the Russian Empire. And the Russian Empire consisted of pretty much everything in that eastern bloc over there. So he's saying that, you know, Belarus and this and that and just everything that's an independent country now you know, after the the breakup of the USSR and even prior to that, uh, the Russian Empire is bigger than the USSR was. And 
he's saying we have to go back to that. And that's what it was a thousand years ago. And these are our Slavic brothers and we have to reunite ourselves. And that's why he calls it annexation rather than invasion. Because he just says, oh, we're just annexing this country or bringing it back. This is rightfully mine. And then there's, you know, some people that I'm going to call misunderstood on this point. They say, oh, yeah, well, listen, he said it was his. It was his. He's just reunifying his people. This is just a fight amongst brothers. Who are we to interfere? Then, of course, some people that are more sober-minded realize, no, this is like um, that guy in Germany, right? And uh, exerting power to take over Europe. And that's exactly what's happening. So uh, it's an interesting point. Uh, I don't think meeting at a hotel, whether it's in Germany or anywhere else, would, would make a difference. Vladimir Putin is using strength to take what he wants. And the only thing that's going to stop him is strength. That's the bottom line. I'm Rich Valdez. More to come. This is America at Night with Rich Valdez. No hair, no care, and live on the air, it's Rich Valdez. All right, and that's true. We are live on the air. This is not a pre-tape. We are live. We're live every day, Monday through Friday, America's late night town hall. Terry in Dixon, Illinois, listening on the internet. Welcome, Terry. You're on with Rich Valdez. Yeah, good evening. Hey, I really like your new music and stuff. But, Thank you, uh, sir. Here's my question. It's, it's, it's a two-part question. Uh, I understand Jim George becoming the chairman of the Judiciary Committee, and he's going to uh, uh, chair the select Committee mm-hmm. on Weaponization of the DOJ. My question is, uh, how can he issue subpoenas and other to other congressional members? Why don't they just follow the Jim Jordan rule or the McCarthy rule, where they uh, where they didn't not uh, comply with subpoenas issued by the Congression, along with other administration officials? And two, on December eighth. Jim Jordan was sitting on the Judiciary Committee. He was asked about a tweet about Kanye West, and he sat there and lied. So how can we trust anything? No, I don't, that I don't know what you're Jim? talking about, about Kanye West and Jim Jordan lying. I don't have any of that information, and I didn't play that audio. Um, uh, what I can tell you is, the from, from what I'm trying to recollect here, this was uh, a question of they asked him to appear, and he challenged it legally. Right. And there was never any contempt charge uh, pressed against him. So I really couldn't go down that rabbit hole with you. Uh, But if the question is, why don't they just defy him? They they very well can. And they and they will just like uh, Peter Navarro uh, refused. And um, and this other gentleman, uh, Steve Bannon, and and they ended up in handcuffs. And the same thing could happen on the other side. And I don't since they went there, that's the new precedent that's set. So we'll see. What, what happens when he subpoenas people to show up, whether they show up or not. You know, it used to be like um, uh, Obama's wingman. What was his name? Eric Holder, uh, where, you know, just I'm not going and not go. So I don't know if th- those days still exist. Maybe, maybe not. We will see. Terry, thank you for your call. Have a wonderful weekend. And Doc, with about a minute to go, Wilmington, Delaware, W-D-E-L. Doc, go right ahead, sir. Yeah, I've got a suggestion for a guest. He's a master statistician. You'd love him. 
His site is shadowstats.com. His name is John Williams. I think he's a PhD. Have more as a guest, Rich. You love compliment, Rich. Rich, you are the worthy successor to Jim Bohannon. You, they hit the ball in the park when they hired you. You're fantastic, and I love you to death. My goodness. You guys are great for my ego. Thank you, brother. Doc, I appreciate you and being succinct and getting everything in. Uh, we'll take a look at, at your guy, the statistician, Mr. Shadow Stevens, or whatever his name was. I know our producers wrote it down. I do appreciate it. And uh, what do you um, what what do you surmise uh, happens with gas stoves? You get to keep them, or are they going to take them away? No, I think I think it's going to be ruled out by the courts that you get to keep them. They can't take them away because their their influence on the environment is to me is minimal. And number two, so many people use them. It's just it's just going to be a rebellion by the conservatives of this country. Yeah, and I think if you take away a gas stove and you replace it with an electric one, uh, now we get more stress and and pressure on the grid. And uh, I, I just that's going to interfere with recharging all of the electric cars we're going to have to use. So I just don't know if it's going to work out. Doc, I appreciate it. Uh, thank you for the call. It's always a pleasure. Thank you, Rich. Yes, sir. All right. So. What do we have here? So we have limb lengthening. We have uh, this six-year-old kid that shot a teacher, and now they're saying they think they, they actually know what was going on there, that they knew he had a gun and they didn't find it. Unbelievable. We'll touch on that when we get together again. Make sure you check out the recap show over the weekend, the best of Rich Valdez, America at Night. Hasta la próxima. Take care. Good night and God bless. I am Rich Valdez, and this is America at Night. John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round. Together, it's those weekend golf guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Titleist and Callaway and on and on and on. Right? How many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra driver? I think I can get an extra 5 to 10. What if I give you 15 to 20? <laughs> you pay me more. Jeff Smith right? teaches on the sliding scale. <laughs> those weekend golf guys, the podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen.